It's good to be here this morning. As uh, Pastor Gary said, my name is Julie, and I'm a missionary associate to Santiago, Chile. Um, I grew up as a pastor's kid, as he mentioned already as well, and spent my teenage years in Brainerd. And um, as I was growing up as a pastor's kid, we would have missionaries coming in and out of the church all the time. My dad would have them in for services, and one of the greatest privileges that I had as a PK was to get to go to lunch or to dinner with the missionaries and to be able to sit down and to hear their stories, to have my parents look at them and go, what are you dealing with right now in your personal life? What's going on outside of your ministry just with you? And to kind of hear some of the backgrounds, the different things, was amazing. Growing up in that, it was normal for me to have a missionary come in and even now to see them at different district events or things like that and walk up to a, a missionary that is from Minnesota and go, hey, how are you doing? And have them look at me and go, I'm doing awesome. How are you? And to know exactly who I am simply because I grew up as a pastor's kid in a church that believed in missions. And um, when I was 12 years old, I was at a service and in what is now National Youth Convention. This was huge. There was like 12,000 students in this one big service. And I had no idea why I was responding to the altar. I don't remember what the sermon was about. Don't remember anything, but kneeling on this concrete floor in the middle of a convention center in the aisle and being on my knees. And all of a sudden, just as if he was sitting on the floor next to me, whispering in my ear, God goes, someday you're going to go to South America. And I went, then why am I taking German? <laughs> and he goes, you'll see. And I went, well, okay. And that started the journey. That says, someday I'm going to be a missionary. And I'm going to go. And I shared a little bit about this with the teenagers in Sunday school. At 16, my parents were invited to go to Romania on a mission trip. My dad was invited to speak at a conference there, and they looked at me and they said, we know you want to go overseas. Now we know that Romania is not South America, but we want to see you outside of your American bubble, where the culture is different, where the language is different, where it's just plain different. And they'd been overseas enough to know that sometimes different in any way is enough different to know, and they said, we want to we wanna see you the first time you go outside the United States. We want to know how you're going to respond. And I freaked my mother out. I was so comfortable that she went, oh, dear. <laughs> she went, yeah, okay. Uh, I think you're right. This is you. This is for you. And every time I've gone overseas ever since, there was just this sense of, like something that I was comfortable with that 
normally Americans aren't comfortable with. And I remember I went to New York with my mom about two and a half years ago. My dad surprised us with a Christmas present. And he said, I've taken both of your brothers on a trip for Christmas at one point. And so I want you and your mom to decide where you want to go. Here's your budget. And it surprised both of us. And so together we decided we were going to go to New York. We went to New York and it took me three days, but I finally talked my mom into going on the subway. She was like, I'm not okay with that. And I said, Mom, will you trust me? I said, if I can figure out the subway in Madrid, Spain, and Barcelona, where I don't know the language, and I can figure it out, do you trust me to figure it out in New York City where I do know the language? And she goes, yeah, I guess. And so we took the subway. And she was like, I would never be able to do this on my own. I would never, she goes, it's because you're with me. And I went, yeah, it is because I'm with you. Because I'm comfortable here. Because public transportation doesn't scare me. And I'm really glad that it doesn't scare me. Because Santiago is a city of 6.3 million people. Where I will be taking public transportation everywhere I go. Now to get back to that. 6.3 million people. God has asked me to go to the fifth largest city in South America. But if you were to take that city and move the whole thing up here, it would be the second largest city. Because the only city in the United States that is bigger than it is New York. And so we're going to put this big, huge, gigantic number into a little bit of perspective for us that we can maybe understand this morning. So... If you take the population of the Twin Cities, okay, most of us are familiar with the Twin Cities, and add to it the population of Los Angeles, you are at roughly the same as the population of Santiago, Chile. That's a really big city. And of those 6.3 million people, less than 2% have a relationship with Jesus. Now, to me, when I heard that, it was staggering because we grow up and we hear all the different things about missions and we kind of assume that most of Latin America is at least somewhat reached, right? But if you look at the statistics, they will tell you that Santiago, as a city, is an unreached people group. And that was staggering to me. When I was looking at where to go, I kind of looked at our regional people and in my applications and all of that, I said, I want to go to South America and I want to work with university students. And they said, okay, pray about Santiago. They told me the statistics I just gave to you. Less than 2%. And I went, whoa, that's a lot of lost people. Now, if you look at the population as a whole and you ask them how they are religiously affiliated, 60% of them would tell you that they are Catholic. But only about 3% of them actually attend Mass regularly. 
So it's a very cultural thing, as it is across most of Latin America. So about 60% of the city will tell you they're Catholic. But if you take that same question and you walk onto the university campuses, 60% of those students will tell you that they are non-religiously affiliated. That's a big drop. Big difference. Because they're becoming more and more apathetic to not only religion, but to God in general. Because the religion that they grew up seeing in their culture didn't have a difference, didn't make a difference in their everyday life. And they said, what's the point? I don't see a big difference. I don't believe in a God that does anything. So why follow the rules if I don't see a difference? And so they started not believing in a God that they don't see make a difference. But we know that we serve a God that does. That wants a personal relationship with each and every person on this planet, including them. So I will be working with the university ministry. It um, is being run right now by a couple that is down there that I'll be working side by side with. They got saved in college, in Texas, in our secular campus ministry called Chi Alpha, if you're familiar with that. And they grew up in the leadership of that in their spiritual life. And working with students, they became directors of that Chi Alpha. And then God sent them overseas to work with university students. And they've been in Chile now for about nine years. Five or six of those have been in Santiago, starting this ministry that I'll be going and working with. And as I was talking to them, they said, all right, so here's the deal. The campuses there look different than they do here. So the ministry has to look different. So instead of one large, huge main campus that we're used to in our American universities, they've got lots of little, smaller universities spread throughout the city based on department. So in one university, there are 18 different campuses spread throughout the city. And some of these campuses could be an hour or more apart from each other by public transportation. And so the ministry can't just be on one localized campus. It has to be on a bunch of them. So one of the things that I'll be doing is going in and meeting with those, the leaders of the small groups that are on some of these different campuses. They're all student-led small groups. And I will be discipling these new leaders as they are discipling their small groups who hopefully then go out and disciple more people. Because we know that a handful of missionaries can't reach 6.3 million people. But the university setting where we are dealing with tomorrow's doctors, lawyers, educators, judges, and politicians, we can make a difference in the lives of those who can make a difference. 
I want better time in their life to reach them than when they're already seeking, they're already searching in the years that they're in college. They're asking the questions. They're starting to go, okay, so what about what my parents believe? Do I care? And we're going, we want to introduce you to a God who cares enough about you that he came and he died so that he could have a relationship with you. So that he could take your sins and forgive them so that you can have that relationship. And that is one of the things that I'll, one of the many things, but one of the main things that I'll be doing as I go to Santiago. If you'll open your Bibles with me this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. But before we get there, I'm going to tell you a little bit of, a little bit of a story about me long time ago. I was three, and I was one of those kids that was really, really little. Now, we've all seen those kids that run around, and they're really small. You know, toddlers generally look small anyway. But I was just under three and a half pounds when I was born, and I didn't really catch up to my peers in size or weight until midway through elementary school. And so my mom likes to tell me that I wore my three-month clothes out crawling. That kind of gives you any hint of how small I really was. And she said it looked super funny when I was running around chasing after my older brothers because I didn't look big enough to even be crawling yet. I was a tiny little peanut. And so when I tell you in this story that I was three, I was really about the size of about a a one-and-a-half-year-old. And that would be a stick skinny, long and lanky, little tiny one and a half year old. And one day the babysitter looks at my brothers and goes, um, where's Julie? And they go, mm-hmm. They're, you know, four and seven. No, they're, I was three, so they were seven and ten. And... She goes, guys, where is Julie? And they go, we don't know. Let's find her. So they scoured the house. They couldn't find me. They started going to the neighbors and looking in the neighborhood, and they couldn't find me. They called my parents. They came home from church, from the meeting they were in, started scouring the neighborhood And my dad was doing one last walk through the house before they called the police about a missing child. And because my dad is a little over six feet tall, had a different vantage point than everyone else in the house, he saw this little tiny lump on the top bunk of my brother's bed, right by the wall. I had decided I was tired, and I crawled up on the top bunk bed snuggled under the blankets right by the wall on my stomach and went to sleep. And it took that little bit of a different vantage point that dad had to be able to find the sleeping toddler. Now, I wasn't necessarily somewhere where I wasn't supposed to be. We played in my brother's room all the time. 
I was allowed on the bunk bed. That wasn't a big deal. It had a railing. I wasn't going to fall off. And I don't know about you, but when you have a tired three-year-old, you want them to go take a nap, right? So I wasn't doing anything that I wasn't supposed to be doing. And I wasn't anywhere that I wasn't supposed to be. But that doesn't mean I wasn't lost. And because I was sleeping, I had absolutely no idea I was lost. And this morning, that brings us to Luke chapter 15. Let's start with verse number 8. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she's found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found the peace which I lost. And likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, most of us have heard and understand the parables that go around this one. You know, we've all heard the parable of the lost sheep, right? Where there's a flock and one wanders, and the shepherd goes and he finds it and he brings it back. And Jesus explains himself in many times throughout the Gospels as the good shepherd. And so we understand through this parable that if somebody who is part of the family of God accidentally wanders off, Jesus will go looking for them. And he'll bring them back. And he'll welcome them home. And we've heard the parable of the lost son, or what a lot of us like to call the parable of the prodigal son. And... It's where this kid purposefully leaves home. For whatever reason, Jesus doesn't say. Good or bad, we don't know. He just leaves. And at one point, decides he wants to go home. And he comes home, and he is welcomed with a gigantic hug and open arms from his father, not caring what he's done or where he's been. He says, you're home. And God does that to us. I don't care where you've been, welcome home. I'm going to treat you like the royal child that you are, whether you feel worthy or not. But in this, looking at it, and I'm going, okay, so there's a lost coin. It's an inanimate object. It can't decide that it's going to roll on its side and roll off the table and go in the corner just to play hide and seek. It doesn't have a brain to be able to, to figure that out. But in this, we're seeing that God's going, what about those that were never in the family or the flock in the first place? Or to put it in a different word, what about those that are lost and have no idea? That like me, at three years old, they're spiritually sleeping and don't know it. 
whether they are doing something terrible with their life or whether they're living a life that most would seem is okay and good. But that doesn't mean that they're not lost. Because unless they know Jesus, they have that relationship with him, and they have asked him to be their savior, they're lost. But do they know it? I spent four school years as a youth pastor in Staples and was surprised sometimes. We had a student walk into our group. He'd been coming for a couple months or so. And all of a sudden, I mentioned Abraham in one of my lessons. He's sitting in the front row, and he's 16 years old, and he looks at me and goes, Abra, who? And I go, Abraham, and he goes, who's that? I was like, all right. So we talked about Jonah, and he goes, Jonah, what? And it was fun as a youth pastor to be able to sit there and talk about these Old Testament heroes of the faith, the different stories that I grew up with in Sunday school, and watch as he's going, wait, God did what? You serious? But realizing there's a huge generation that is coming up that has no idea about who God is. That the only time they hear the name of Jesus is as a swear word. And when there's a whole generation that is coming up completely lost, not only do they not know, they don't care. But there's people older than that generation that are completely lost and have no clue. What are we doing about it? Because they could be your neighbors or your coworkers or maybe even somebody in your family. Your kids' friends, their parents. that are spiritually sleeping. They need somebody to wake them up, but they have no idea. That's one thing to be lost and know you're lost, right? I was in the grocery store with my mom and my grandma when I was really little, and I remember that I lost them, and I panicked because I couldn't find mom. I couldn't find grandma. And I had no idea where they were, and everybody was much bigger than me. But there's a big difference between a three-year-old in the grocery store that can't find mom and is crying because she's lost, and a three-year-old sleeping in her brother's bed who's just sleeping because she has no idea that she's lost. Because one is panic-inducing, and one is not. One says, I'm lost, and I know I'm lost, and I need to find my mom, 
And maybe we see that near the end where people are like the prodigal son or the sheep that are going, I'm lost and I know I'm lost. And they're either going, God, will you help me? Will you help me? Will you come and get me? Or they're going, maybe I need to go home. But God's going, what about the ones that don't know about home? What are we doing about them? Are you living your life in such a way that we're working on waking them up? Are we living our lives in such a way that when God goes, go talk to that person, we go, okay. And not only do we go talk to that person, but we do it in his strength, not our strength. Because when he asks us to do something, he's not asking us to do that. He's going, will you be my vessel to go work in their life? Because we should be doing it in his power, not our power. Now, I learned this in a very real way on a missions trip in college. I went to Peru, and we were sitting there one day, and our team leader looks at us and goes, okay, who's speaking in youth group tomorrow night? And we all just kind of looked back and forth and avoided eye contact with our leader, John, and we were like, nope, nope, nope. And all of a sudden, I feel God go, you are. And I'm going, no, I am not. And he's going, you are. I'm going, uh-uh, not happening. And uh, a team leader just kind of let us sit there for a little while. And then he looks at us and he goes, I'm not going to make anybody do it, but that's kind of why you're here. It's a learning trip. And then he just sat there. He goes, who's preaching in youth group tomorrow night? Decided to sweat it out. I felt God go, you are. And I'm going, no. He's going, yes. I go, fine. And I go, I guess I will. And he goes, well, don't sound so enthusiastic about it. I'm going, no, 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 John, you don't understand. I said, see, when I get nervous, my voice shoots like two octaves higher than it already is. And it gets shakier than it already is, and it sounds like I'm going to cry. And he just kind of looks at me with this, like, amused look on his face. And one of my friends on the team looks at me, and she goes, Julie, your face is turning red just thinking about it. And I went, yes, see? But just because it was outside of my comfort zone, like, way outside of my comfort zone. Didn't mean that I wasn't supposed to listen to the voice of God when he said, you're preaching tomorrow night. So the next day I looked at him and we were doing some stuff as a team and getting ministry prepared for the following, for the week as it progressed. And I said, hey, John, I need some time today to finish prepping for tonight. And he goes, all right, you have 45 minutes right now, and that's all I can give you. You can use that classroom right over there. And I went, okay. 
So I walk into this classroom, it's fairly large, and I sit down at this table and I open my Bible and my journal, and I kind of go, um, I don't even know what I'm doing. And I start to pray. And I feel God go, hey, Julie, you did a play in church. And I went, yeah. He goes, why can you do plays, but you can't do speeches? I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, and I'm going, well, because the play's not my words. The speech is. And he goes, yeah, and? And I sat there, and I went, oh, okay. Because it was in that question that I went, me getting up there to preach shouldn't be my words either. They should be yours. And he goes, yeah, so why are you nervous? And although my voice started sh- started out a little shaky, the nerves were there as I got up there, the same girl who told me my face was red looked at me after and she goes, by the end your voice was completely smooth, normal. She goes, you're shaking now after it's done, but you were fine up there. Because it wasn't my words. They were his words. And as long as I let him speak through me, I didn't have to worry about it. And there's quite a few places where Jesus looks at his disciples and that's listed in the Gospels, and he talks about how the Holy Spirit will speak through them when they're standing in front of magistrates and different religious leaders or political leaders, lawmakers, when they're in trouble or in front of a crowd. But the Holy Spirit is the one that will be giving them the words to say. That they don't have to worry about it. So the question comes, when God asks us to go talk to that person, whether it's our coworker or our neighbor, if their eternity is on the line, you think God will speak through you too? Because it's not your life on the line like it was the disciples. It's the eternity of the person that you're talking to. How much more will the Holy Spirit speak through you when it's not a physical life, but a spiritual life on the line? And do we live like that? In such a way that when God says, hey, go talk to that person, we go, okay, just don't let me get in the way. Speak through me. Don't let me do the talking. Because if it's us doing the talking, then we might as well not go talk to them. But if we let the Holy Spirit do the talking change their life, could change their eternity. But do we consciously live like that? 
Because there's a lot of people in your life that your pastor's never going to talk to if they don't walk through the doors of this church. But you talk to them regularly. Or you see them regularly. Or God goes, hey, go talk to them. And you go, I've never seen them before in my life. And he goes, I know. Go talk to them. Because he knows where they're at spiritually. He's got the vantage point that's a little bit higher, a little bit different than we have. And he says, they're ready. I just need a tool. Will you be that tool? Like we sang this morning in this song, God, make me your vessel. Were we being honest when we sang that? Make me your vessel. And do we understand what that really means? Sharing a little bit with the teenagers this morning about another part of my trip to Peru where we went up to the mountains of Cusco. And we were staying with host families when we were there. And some of the host families didn't have heat in their houses. And most of the buildings didn't have heat at all. And it did get below freezing. We were there in the wintertime. There was frost on the ground. I mean, it wasn't as cold as it was this morning. But it freezes there. And then we wake up. Take a cold shower. And when it is freezing outside, and you don't have heat in your water, a cold shower is a cold shower. Because they don't have hot water. There's a few people that do, but it's kind of scary to use. Because it's using what they call a widow maker. And so you turn the water on, and you turn the electricity on, and that's how your water is heated. So if you want a hot shower, you're getting a hot shower with electricity running through that water. And you got to remember to turn the electricity off before you turn the water off or you're in trouble. Your system doesn't quite like it if you, don't, if you do it the opposite way. And there's a reason that it's called a Widowmaker. And it has earned that name. Because there is electricity running through that water. So you have to choose. Do you want an ice cold shower? Or the possibility of getting electrocuted? And it was quite an interesting trip, to say the least. We walk out. None of the buildings have heat. So when you've got your coat on, you walk into a building, you leave your coat on. So I was talking to the missionaries that I'm going to be working with. And they're from Texas. So to them, Santiago's cold. Okay. It does get down to about 40. Sometimes it freezes, but not often. It does get down to about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. 
and they're going, it's cold. I'm going, okay, right. You're from Southern Texas. And they go, yeah, but he goes, sometimes we get frozen out of church. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, we don't have heaters in our buildings. And I'm going, oh, right. I remember this. So when it's 40 degrees at night, you walk into a concrete building. Even though it may be now 50 degrees outside, guess what the temperature is inside? Generally, it's still 40 degrees because concrete holds cold. He goes, yeah, we get frozen out of church. And I said, oh, so what you're telling me is that I need to dress for church like I dress for the deer stand. And he goes, uh, what? He goes, yes? And I said, yeah, you're from a big city in Texas. You don't understand. <laughs> and they're going, yeah, you'll be good in the cold. You're from Minnesota. You're great. They're going, you'll have the clothes. You're going to be fine. But what I'm not used to is walking into a house and keeping my coat on because it's just as cold, if not colder, inside. Or going shopping and leaving my coat on because the store is cold. Because we're used to heat in our buildings. They're not. And one of the other missionaries down there said, some of the churches are finally getting with it and putting patio heaters inside so the sanctuary is not quite so cold. I'm going, oh, that's a good idea. But the hot water is the same. I'm going, this could get interesting. Taking my life in my own hands every time I take a shower. But that's reality. And that's where God's asked me to go. And I go, okay. Not because it's that simple, really, of an answer. But because that's what he's asked me to do. And my mission field may be a city of 6.3 million people halfway around the world. But your mission field is right where you are every single day. We're asked to go and make disciples of all nations. That includes right here in Cross Lake. Or I live in Brainerd, half hour away. Wherever you are is where you're called. Whether that's your school, your workplace, your family. Where you are is your mission field. Do you live like it? Day in and day out going, God, how do you want to make a difference with me today? How can I be your vessel to impact someone else's life today? Because there is a world out there 
that is spiritually sleeping and dying and going to hell if they don't know Jesus. And there are missionaries that you support. They're going all over the world to help with this problem. To tell other people about Jesus. Your missions dollars make a difference. But do you also make a difference? The way you live your life. Because it's not just the people in Ukraine or Santiago, or Russia, or the Baltic states that need Jesus. It's people right here that need him too. Because just like he died for the 6.3 million people in a city more than half a world away, he died for your neighbor and your coworker, your family member, your friends. Do they know that? Now, I can't go to a city of 6.3 million people without your help. I need your prayers. I'm walking into a battlefield. Because Satan has control of over 98% of that city and doesn't want to lose a single person. He's fighting for them. And as I go down there, I'm going to feel that fight. And the way we fight is through prayer. Will you pray for me? So that is the number one thing that I need. Got a clipboard in the back if you want to be on my prayer list. There's regular updates. Sending them out through email. But I've also got prayer cards on the back table. Will you grab one? Will you put it somewhere where you will see it and remember to pray for me? And I've had people tell me that these things are all over their places. And one lady look at me and go, it's on my exercise bike. I see it every single morning when I get up and I ride. I pray for you while I'm exercising. And I go, that's awesome. <laughs> Some people put them on their fridge. My mom has missionary cards lining her mirror. So when she gets ready in the morning, she goes through them, prays with them. Praise for the missionaries. My nieces and nephews, they're seven and five. And she has some in her bedroom, hanging on the wall. And so when I'm up there and we go in and we pray with her before she goes to bed, we go, what do you want to pray for? And she goes, the missionaries. We go, which ones? She's in her room. She'll point to them. And if she's not in her room, like she's at our house, and she goes, um, she can remember some of them off the top of her head because she prays for them regularly, and she's seven. Her little brother has a book. And so when they do devotions as a family in the morning, 
They open his book, and they go down the line. And they pray for the missionaries every day. And I was putting him to bed a little bit ago at my house. And I go, all right, buddy, what do you want to pray for tonight? He goes, the missionaries. And I go, which ones? He goes, all of them. And I'm going, all right, we'll pray for all the missionaries. But the text I got the day that they prayed for me, my card in their book, he said, hey, just wanted to let you know we prayed for you today. And I know that he sends these to as many missionaries as he can, whether it's a Facebook message or a text or just an email that says, hey, my family prayed for you today. That's huge. Will you grab a card? Will you put it somewhere where you will remember to pray for me? Because I'm walking into a battlefield. Secondly, I can't go without your financial support. Will you help me not only get there, but stay there? Because I can't go without your financial help. And there's a city of 6.3 million people that need Jesus. Jesus.